From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. On this episode of Electionomics, we look at what the economy and the stock market might look like if Joe Biden wins the White House. Joining us now is Ed Mills. He is Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Ed, good to see you here on Electionomics. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be here, Alexis. Thanks for having me. So uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is dominating President Trump uh, in the polls right now. You've done some recent research that uh, that seems to jive with that. But my question is, has the stock market, you think, fully priced in a Biden win and what that might mean for policy in 2021? I think that is the key question, Alexis. And what we've been doing at Raymond James is um, we hold a weekly call. It started at the beginning of the stay-at-home orders on kind of what's happening in DC uh, with a COVID-19 bent. Um, when we first started asking about the election, um, we had about 56% of the respondents anticipate that Donald Trump was going to be reelected. And this is a uh, non-scientific poll, but it's a good pulse, and that's our uh, institutional investors and uh, management teams that we provide research coverage on. Um, but recently, uh, when we asked the question again, it is now up to a 69% of the respondents said that they are now anticipating Joe Biden to win. So the Biden presidency uh, is, in my mind, anticipated uh, by the markets. Is it going to happen is a different story. Um, and then the next thing, um, what surprised me is that as much as it seems as if sentiment has shifted among uh, institutional investors I speak with regarding the presidency, uh, there still is skepticism that a Biden presidency equals a Democratic sweep, where uh, he would also have a Democratic majority in the House, in the Senate. So I don't think that's priced in. And I think that will be what's really interesting over the next couple of months if the market reacts to that. Ed, since you talked to the investing community, um, what are they? Do they like Joe Biden? I mean, what do they think of him? That's a qualitative question, not a quantitative question, but just your impression. Yeah, you know, I think that there uh, we do live in a very polarized world. So, um, you know, I think that our personal opinions certainly kind of come out at certain times and in conversations uh, that does incur. Uh, but I don't get the sense that uh, the market is looking at uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump in the kind of knee jerk. One is good. One is bad for the markets. Uh, much of the conversations I've have are much more nuanced. They want to dig into what does this mean for fiscal stimulus? What does this mean for the China trade fight? Uh, how are we to look at kind of regulations in 2021 and beyond as it relates to heavily regulated industries for healthcare, energy, financials, technology? So uh, much more of a nuanced conversation. And I don't get anyone who is willing to say across the board, one is good for the markets or the other is bad for the markets. It really is gonna depend on what the economy looks like and what the market needs uh, to go up come January of 2021. I just wanna follow up on the Trump part of that equation. Uh, conventional wisdom for most of Trump's presidency has been that investors uh, like Trump. I mean, they think he's good for uh, business. He favors uh, lower taxes. He did preside over the big tax cut in 2017, big deregulatory push, things that are generally good for stocks. And, and then came the pandemic. And Trump has uh, obviously been criticized for a slow response to the pandemic. Even now, he's downplaying, downplaying the need to do testing, which is one way you might be able to reopen more quickly. Do you feel like investor sentiment toward Trump is still generally positive or has it soured a little bit? 
Yeah, I, it's, it's a great question. Uh, the way I've uh, you know, approached that is that at the beginning of the Trump presidency, I, I kind of had two lists, things that were coming out of D.C. that were clear market positives and things that were coming out of D.C. that were market negatives. Uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration, as you highlighted, the agenda was squarely focused on the list of market positives. Uh, one of the debates that I've had with a lot of clients is that much of that to-do list is done. And kind of what we've seen over the last couple of years is a focus on China trade. Uh, trade uncertainty is a market negative. Um, you know, there are kind of some potential upsides, but the market doesn't like the potential for the decoupling of the United States in China, um, geopolitical risk. Uh, scandals or kind of, you know, different congressional investigations. So I'm not sure if it's as much of the market souring as much as there is a feeling that much of what could have been done is completed. And there's a real question of if Trump gets reelected, what does that mean from here? And is that a market positive or is that a market negative? Um, that's that's really where the conversations are right now. And to my ear, Trump has not really said much about what he would do additionally or diff differently in a second term. Have you heard anything that investors should care about there? Yeah, I mean, I think that I have focused a lot on this China trade situation. And I think that the, you know, one of the thoughts is that if he were to win a second term, uh, that he would follow through with some of the threats that were not completely followed through on the first term. Um, I think it is a potential supercharging um, and continuation of a deregulatory agenda. Um, but, you know, as, as we look at other things, uh, immigration is a kind of top priority. Uh, recently, there was a decision related to visas of foreign workers. Um, you look at tech companies that rely heavily on that. Um, to kind of make sure that they maintain an international workforce and kind of have the workforce they need to complete projects. And so I think the business community looks at some of those and say, if this is the future of the agenda, I'm not sure how I fit into that. And that's not even bringing up the tech regulations that uh, are potential coming out of a second term of a Trump administration as well. Ed, if we look to the past for any guidance here on, on the future, we find that incumbents rarely lose, right? I think we had three in the past 80 years, uh, George H.W., Bush, Jimmy Carter, and, and Gerald Ford. What could Trump learn from those three gentlemen? Um, and are there any warning signs there for him? Was, was there anything that those three had in common that, that had them end up on the losing end of things? Yeah, Alexis. I mean, what, what we what we wrote in our report was that um, every single presidential election since the Great Depression, uh, when the economy is doing well, the incumbent gets reelected. Um, and for a you know, incumbent to lose, there was usually two things that happened. One, a real primary challenger, which didn't happen here. And number two, some economic suffering. It was usually at least a recession in the two years leading up to the election. Um, at the beginning of this year, we had given Trump the odds on favorite to win a second term, largely over kind of how the election, how the economy was doing here. Um, but with the economic shock of COVID-19, um, we have to reassess those odds. I think his probability of re-election could easily be tied to what type of economic recovery we see between now and election day. Um, but we're not quite sure if kind of enough voters have made up their mind that even a 
recovery uh, would do it. I think that's going to be the debate uh, that you and I are having for months to come here. Mm-hmm. You know, Ed, we know that Trump had very uh, negative approval ratings in 2016 prior to the election, but he still won. Is this, So is it too early? I mean, not that you are, but is it too early for some uh, maybe investors to count Trump out at this point? Yeah. So, I, you know, th- that brings up two things, I think. Uh, one, um, you know, 2016, we had two really unpopular choices. Um, yeah, kind of if you look at favorability, unfavorability ratings. Um, and in 2016, if you look at the um, exit polling data, if you had someone who disliked both candidates, Trump won that group by about 16 percentage points. Um, right now, uh, Trump is still underwater uh, in his kind of approval ratings. He has a net negative approval rating. Um, Biden is about kind of even to sometimes down in low single digits. Um, but according to one recent poll, he has a 40 point advantage among people who dislike both Trump and Biden. They seem to be leaning towards um, <clears throat> Biden. So how does Trump win it if, if he is not able to win that group? We're really focused on kind of is there the ability of the Trump campaign to get the base voter out. Someone who supported Donald Trump in 2016, but didn't vote. Uh, one quick example is Wisconsin. Trump won Wisconsin with fewer than 25,000 votes. His single biggest kind of support group uh, is non-college educated white men. There's almost half a million non-college educated white men in Wisconsin who didn't vote in 16. So if he can get a large percentage of them to vote, um, that's his path to kind of capturing Wisconsin or capturing some of the other swing states. It's a narrow path, but that's how he does it if he's able to do it. And I want to ask you about um, what Joe Biden might do if he gets elected president. So he, he does have a, a, a fairly elaborate economic plan. We haven't heard much about it. He has not been, uh, I mean, he's not been um, real vocal lately, except to criticize President Trump, which is probably the way the Biden campaign wants wants it to go. But he does have a lot of economic ideas and that were almost all of them formed before the virus. So you did, you did a nice job in a recent report summarizing some of these. He wants to raise the corporate tax rate to uh, 28%, I believe. He'd raise incomes on uh, uh, above $400,000. Uh, there would be a minimum corporate tax. Um, he would tax capital gains at a higher rate and things like that. So um, get, since all of this um, came before the virus. Let, let's say he did get elected with a f- Democratic Senate, so he had full control of government. I don't think it would make any sense at this point to raise anybody's taxes, whether if we're in the middle or even the immediate aftermath of a recession. Does that make sense to you? I think that's going to be part of the pushback. Um, you know, I think part of the, you know, to the first part of your question about why we don't hear too much about this, I do think that the Biden campaign would love to make this uh, election a referendum on Donald Trump and not a choice between the two candidates. The more Biden talks about his policies, uh, the more it becomes a choice between the two candidates. And that is an opening for Trump. And so um, Trump will be the person that makes this more of a push towards that choice and highlight some of these agenda items. Um, But when you look at the economic policies that are promoted, uh, they are different from uh, President Trump's policies but in polling data, you actually see a pretty large swath of Americans in support of reversing uh, some of the Trump era tax cuts 
on the wealthiest individuals in this country, on corporations. There is a sense that uh, a lot of voters have that that tax cut did not individually help them. And so politically, there is some backdrop that kind of could get the momentum to get that done. Um, set that against a, a economic reality and a kind of COVID-19 recovery we're in. I do think that um, if they were to kind of see any increase in taxes, you could phase it in over time, that march back up to 28%. I think you could also couple that with an infrastructure spending bill, more fiscal relief, something that helps out the consumer so that the kind of economic impact is mitigated but you're able to accomplish your longer term policy goal as part of any change kind of in an economic agenda from a Biden administration. If uh, Democrats were able to take control of the Senate, it would be a very thin margin, maybe just a, a couple of seats. It definitely would not be 60 seats. Um, sure. so, so, the, so, my, so, so there seems to be an assumption that, well, even if they have a one or two seat majority, if Biden wanted to, let's say, let's just talk about raise the corporate tax, that every Democrat would uh, vote for an increase in the corporate tax. And I, I scratch my head and I wonder if that's true. Uh, I'm not sure, it just does, it doesn't mean every single Democrat is in favor of, uh, of a tax hike and you'd need all of them. So um, what you, you have a good feel for uh, the dynamics on Capitol Hill. Do you think Biden could get every single Democrat to vote for a corporate tax hike? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an honest and really good question, Rick. Um, and the way I look at this is that you know, in D.C., you know, things seem impossible right up to the moment they are inevitable. Um, and, you know, I try to put myself in, you know, kind of fast forward. What does it feel like the day, the week, a couple months after the election? Um, and, you know, if there is a, you know, kind of strong victory by Biden, if that comes with a Senate majority, there's going to be a lot of pressure on individual Democratic senators to go along in adopting that economic agenda. Um, and, you know, I think there's going to be some pressure on uh, some Republicans to join. I don't think that there is going to be a kumbaya moment in D.C. Everyone always tries to predict that after an election. And, you know, pretty quickly you see both sides go back into their corners and tribalism takes over. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's 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 something that makes it harder to come by, something that elongates the process. But I wouldn't I wouldn't count it out um, altogether, especially if you know you have Biden increasingly discussing that we're going to have some sort of you know kind of transformational change uh, post this election, kind of a continuation of you, know, you had the New Deal responding to uh, the Great Depression, you had the New Society programs of a former lion of the Senate, uh, President Johnson. I think he would like to continue um, and have that third wave of big policy changes that, you know, kind of a lot of Democrats would say are needed in some of those issues were exposed during kind of the COVID-19 crisis, minimum wage, you know, sick leave, some of those kind of transformational uh, changes, I think are absolutely going to be on the agenda. Uh, and there's gonna be a lot of pressure for members of Congress uh, to support that agenda. And how do investors feel about Joe Biden when it comes to his trade policy? Is this a weak 
area for him. We know that Trump has gone after Biden uh, with his relationship with China. There seems to be some agreement in this country, no matter what side of the aisle you fall on, that we need as a country to continue to challenge China. And now, of course, there's a whole other layer of that, right? We have this this horrible virus that Trump keeps blaming China for. Uh, Peter Navarro recently came out, his top trade advisor, saying that China lied about the virus. So, so where does Biden stand on trade policy as it relates to China? And are investors more comfortable with Trump when it comes to trade policy? Now, I think I think investors would be more comfortable with Biden on trade policy be, just because I think they would view him as more predictable. Um, I think that there is this bifurcation that goes on where I think a lot of investors I speak to kind of quietly say, you know, kind of support a lot of what's going on in the trade fight with China. Uh, they would prefer not to have the volatility of that. Um, and so kind of the way I've always described this China trade fight, and I think it's important to remember, um, you know, historically, it was Democrats who have been more anti-trade and anti-China. It's Trump that has brought along the Republican Party into this position over the last couple of years. Uh, but for this year, uh, Trump is going to be aggressive on China. Um, and, you know, Biden is going to make sure that he counterpunches on any kind of China initiative. Because, you know, in D.C. or in politics, you know, when you're explaining, you're losing. So uh, if you're a presidential candidate, a member of Congress, you have a choice which team you're on. Are you on Team USA or Team China? It's not a hard choice for a politician to make. So this year, incredible increase in anti-China rhetoric uh, in a Biden administration. I think that rhetoric comes down. I think there is a chance to walk back some of the tariffs to provide economic relief. I think pressure stays on from kind of technology and financial um, you know, areas, uh, but you know, much more predictable in a return to global alliances on other areas of trade with Europe, with Canada, with Mexico, uh, with traditional allies. The market would want that. Yeah, and I want to ask you about two uh, specific Biden proposals, and I just ask you to handicap uh, the odds that these things could happen. Uh, this would be under a full Democrat control scenario. This would these things would not happen if Republicans still had the Senate. But the first is the that the ten thousand dollar cap on the state and local tax deductions. Uh, do you think if Democrats controlled the Senate, they would eliminate that cap and just go back to the way it used to be? It's possible. I, I don't think it's a top agenda item. Um, yeah, one of the the hard thing about the kind of salt deduction uh, is that when you if you were to change that salt deduction, um, it disproportionately goes to kind of the very top of the income spectrum or the vast majority of the benefit uh, by design uh, goes there. So the only way in which I see a salt change is if there's other large scale changes to the individual side that mitigates for top wage earners the kind of benefit of that repeal. So you might be able to do that if you are at the same time raising the tax bracket on uh, top or, you know, the top two tax brackets or raising the cap gains rate, for example. Yeah, I think it's it, it would have to be part of a compromise. You couldn't just kind of eliminate that cap because that would come across as um, a tax cut to some of the highest wage earners in this country. Uh, but I think the um, Democrats have some real concerns about um, you know, folks that are in the upper middle class, especially in high tax states that are traditionally blue Democratic states who, when all was said and done, 
they got a tax increase after the Trump era tax cuts. Uh, that was not something that Democrats would support, and they would be looking to target those who got an increase that are in the upper middle class, not in that top five or one percent of the income brackets in the United States. Asking the question of whether this minimum corporate tax is something that could pass uh, a Democrat controlled Senate. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Rick. I think that when I look at this, uh, you know, what what's really the question that is trying to be answered here? And it's about fairness for Democrats. Uh, there is a sense that our current tax code is unfair and it disproportionately benefits the wealthy and corporations who have lobbyists that are able to kind of uh, put in place certain kind of deductions um, you know, that benefit them. Um, I think what we co go back you know, before even this minimum 15%, under the Obama administration, um, you know, we had taxed earnings worldwide uh, in the Trump administration with the Trump tax cuts. We have moved towards a territorial system and have established this kind of nationwide alternative minimum tax uh, for that. So um, I think what you're seeing proposed by Biden is a continuation of the policies that he and Barack Obama proposed when they were in the White House uh, with a little bit of an update to kind of uh, kind of adhere to the influence that Elizabeth Warren now has on the party. So as for the, the if, if he were to get, if he were able to get a higher corporate tax rate up to 28%, that to me does not sound like a disaster scenario for stocks. I mean, the corporate rate used to be 35% and, uh, you know, stocks went up for most of uh, Obama's uh, presidency, for example. Plus if it were 28%, that's the nominal rate. Most companies don't pay the nominal rate. So is that, okay a proposal to raise uh the corporate tax rate up to 28 from 21. yeah i think your talking points are the talking points of the democratic party which is oh don't know, say that okay <laughs> i know i know um you know i think, can hear the tweets now uh, i'm just joking the uh you know it's, it's the you know there is a conversation to be had that um and this goes back to my conversation about uh, you know let's not have knee-jerk reactions of one party good, one party bad for the stock market. It is much more of a nuanced conversation. Uh, it is true that um, the market had done well with a 35% you know, statutory rate. Uh, the bigger issue is, you know, what is the effective rate? And so those details really matter. We don't have any of those details as we're sitting here today. Uh, so I'm, I'm telling clients, uh, watch this. Uh, but recognize that it's about the totality of the system um, that is being created, not just about some headline number. Ed, you reminded me, I probably have to be a little meaner to Democrats. It's okay. <laughs> just to keep fair. things you know, fair and balanced here, Rick. Yeah. Um, right. Ed, before we wrap things up, you said earlier in our conversation that Trump needs to sort of uh, get more folks out who didn't vote last time at all to go out and vote this time, among them, uh, his base being uh, white males, uh, not college educated. Give us one or two things you think Trump can do between now and November uh, to incentivize those people to get out and vote. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're, you're seeing some of it play out right now. I think that, you know, in traditional campaigns, you're looking kind of after the primary season for each candidate to kind of pivot to the middle um, and try to capture that swing voter that they've already locked in their base. Um, I do think um, both Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden have locked in their base. 
but I'm not expecting uh, the Trump campaign to kind of have that pivot, uh, try to win over that, um, you know, you know kind of voter that would traditionally be up for grabs. I do anticipate that he is going through his Twitter feed, policy announcements, uh, press conferences, do things that try to kind of activate that base and give them a reason to kind of go out, you know, get out and vote. As part of that, I do think that this is going to be a kind of pretty in the gutter uh, election um, and the Trump campaign is going to try to paint the picture uh, that this is a choice and it is not a referendum. And the choice of a Joe Biden is something that the base of the Trump um, administration would not want, trying to give him that reason to come out and support his reelection. All right, in the gutter, we're gonna get ready for a dirty fight. I can't wait. <laughs> gives us more fodder, gives us more stuff to talk about. All right, Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Thanks so much for being with us. And thanks to all of you for watching uh, Electionomics. Be sure to rate and review what you just heard and follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman, five-star reviews only. All right, everybody, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.